Welcome to Career Crashers, where we tell the stories of those who are not content to wait around following rules and hoping for good things to happen. Great careers aren't found, they're forged. It's time to crash the party. All right, man. Career Crashers has never been better. I'm here with my best friend in the whole world, TK <laughs> Coleman. <laughs> TK, uh, TK and I worked together for years on Praxis. And I don't even, TK, I don't even know exactly what we're going to talk about on this episode because there are so many things. Your personal career story, we did like a long two-part interview a couple years ago on the Isaac Morehouse podcast, kind of going through that journey. But to sum it up, you know, TK, kind of always a dreamer, always interested in books, wanted to be a pro basketball player or maybe karate when he was a kid. <laughs> and it wanted to go into acting, maybe in high school and college, did, did theater, did philosophy, started to pursue academia as a philosopher, kind of decided he didn't want to do that, was a financial planner, getting good money and moving his way up, kind of an early job out of college. Everybody was proud. And as soon as he got really good at it, like really good at it, dominating, he was like, you know what? This isn't for me. And always in between your like respectable jobs, you always quit to go do something like work the night shift at a nursing home or be a bartender at Applebee's. Uh, left, went out to LA to pursue acting dreams, got a couple good breaks, ended up getting an agent, getting on a, on a TV show, um, decided production was more interesting than just pursuing acting, started a production company with a buddy trying to get a screenplay approved. Then moved into a tech startup for the Hollywood scene, trying to build a tech startup, raising VC. And it was right around this time. Then started working for a sort of high-end dog-sitting business and then eventually started running that business. It was right around this time when I convinced you to come build Praxis with me. And we spent six years together building Praxis. And now you're doing your own thing, kind of you're working for fee, but you're doing a lot of just sort of speaking, podcasting, writing on things you're passionate about. So I wanted to give that big summary because I don't want to go over just your timeline. I want to like maybe pick a few stories that can tease out some of the lessons that you think are the most valuable for your own career. Does that sound fair? Yeah, that sounds good. You know, it, it's weird when I think about my timeline because I, I was just on um, Pastor Paul Vanderclay's podcast and, and he was asking me about my background and I took him through the whole like the whole American Idol path, you know, and I didn't even I mention like, that. I, I feel like my my career path is like a choose your own adventure novel. <laughs> there are about ten different stories you can tell, all of which are equally true, but they're completely different, and they make me look like a completely different person. Yeah, so I don't like even you know could, how to tell my own. <laughs> you could go the like grew up in the church, pastor's kid. You could frame it as like you know attention, making peace with your childhood. You could make it about, you know, leaving to go try to become a singer on American Idol. There's so many things. That, that's what's interesting about your career. Maybe we can start here is, you know, people say this about everybody's career. They say, oh, looking backwards, you know, the line doesn't look linear from point, you know, when I was a kid to where I am now. It's all squiggly and you go in places you didn't know. But I feel like with yours, it's not just like looking backwards. It's like, looking forward, looking in the present. Like I truly don't ever know what you're going to do. It would not shock me if you were like, Isaac, I'm going to go be an accountant for a couple of years. All this <laughs> like, like you just really, 
in a, in a more extreme way than anyone I've known. And I've never felt like you are selling out or like, if you're not sure about something, as soon as you are sure you, you don't suffer through it, you switch even at great cost to yourself. So like you're, you're, you're not selling out, but somehow your, your ability to translate what you're passionate about into a huge number of roles, roles that are respectable to others and roles that aren't respectable to others. Like I've never seen you working a job you know, doing national seminars and teaching or, or bartending at Applebee's that you didn't view as perfectly in line with your purpose in life. So let's yeah. start there. Is mm. that something that you, do you only choose jobs that you see that way? Or do you think you have trained yourself to see every job as potentially part of your mission? Well, you know, it, it's similar to how I choose books, right? So I, I can take you to some books that are about typical self-help stuff that you'd associate with me, like how to be more motivated, how manage time. Then I can take you to some books that are about like the philosophy of language. Then I can take you to some stuff that's like about systems thinking and monetary theory. Then I can take you to some stuff that's, you know, nothing to do with that on health and nutrition. And to, to an outsider, they may seem like all different subjects. And all I see are just answers to questions that I'm asking. Like, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me what the label is. Like, is that nutrition? Or is that philosophy or is that economics? Like, look, every subject has got a bunch of stuff I don't even care about, right? Like there's a ton of stuff in economics I don't care about, bores me to death. There's a ton of stuff in philosophy that bores me to death, but all of the subjects are kind of brought together by a single thread. And that's TK's curiosities, the questions that he's asking right now. And I kind of see jobs in that way too. I've never really cared about the label, the title, the industry, the, the notoriety that it has in other people's eyes. I've always looked at it from the vantage point of what do I want to learn right now so that I can either just experience the joy of doing that activity or like I can create the kinds of advantages that will come to me as a result of accumulating experience in this particular area. So when I worked at a nursing home at, at an assisted living facility with, with elderly people who had dementia and Alzheimer's, I truly didn't see that as like more or less respectable than when I worked as a financial advisor at American Express. Now, some people were more proud of, proud of me when I worked one rather than the other. But to me, they were, they were both kind of the same. And if I really had to compare, I'd say the one where I worked with people who had Alzheimer's and dementia was much more fun. And I probably learned a lot more about life doing that one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I always liked it when you worked the jobs that your parents were concerned about <laughs> because because you had more time to philosophize and, <laughs> and have late night conversations. So it's interesting. <clears throat> I, I've known you for about 20 years, so I can't speak to, you know, earlier than that, your teen years or whatever. And I don't know, you know, how you viewed your earlier experiences, but all the time I've known you, every single job you've had, like I said, from, from working at Applebee's to, um, you know, uh, talking with bigwig producers about your own production company. I never felt a sense from you in either of those that you thought this job is crappy. I hate this. You always had this sense of like interest and excitement and curiosity. You'd be like, dude, so check it out. I'm serving right now, but I see bartending. I see what they do. And it's fascinating. I want to learn to mix those drinks so that I can understand the trick, the key to connecting. When people come to the bar, what is it that they really want? How can I learn that? I'm trying to learn from the guys in the kitchen about how you do this and how you, and like everything is like a study for you 
So much so that I think your friends will sometimes get concerned. They'll be like, TK, like, I mean, that's cool. I'm glad you're enjoying it. But like, you, you know, maybe Applebee's isn't where your future is. Maybe you should be looking somewhere else. And you've always had this kind of ability to almost recklessly, almost what other people might say responsibly, lose yourself in whatever is interesting to you. And you're not afraid. You seem to have no FOMO. You don't feel like, well, if I go all in trying to be the absolute greatest bartender Applebee's has ever had, how's that going to limit my future? You don't seem to think that way. You just seem to think, how can I extract every bit of mastery and learning out of this experience? And, and, and the result seems to be that like people come in and you bartend them and they're like, hey, you want to run my company for me? You seem like a great <laughs> you know, like, Tell me about that. Is, is that... Is that accurate or have you, have you had jobs where you've had to really struggle to not just be like frustrated and bored and feel like it was beneath you? So I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that every job I've ever worked, and I, and I, and I think this will probably always be true, there, there have always been aspects that were more fun than others. And there were always aspects where you just got to do these annoying things in order to maintain or protect what you have. And that's kind of like life, right? Like every relationship is going to require you to do some annoying things to protect or, or, or maintain what's valuable to you. But I'll, I'll use another analogy with the books because there is this faith that I have in my curiosity and in knowledge that is, is at this stage of life almost invincible. But I, I, you know, I, my, my confidence in it has grown ever since I was a kid. But I, I will put it this way. When I, when I read a book, and I'll bring it back to jobs in a second, but when I read a book, the question that drives me is not what, it, what will I do with this information? The question that drives me is what will this information do with me? And I know that's very mystical sounding, right? But to me, it's sort of like, you know, I pick up some book and I look at the table of contents and I go, whoa, I, I don't even have any clue what they're talking about, right? I have no clue what this book is talking about right now. But in about one month after I'm done reading this, all the information that's in here, it's going to be in here. What is that going to be like? Like, what kind of thoughts am I going to have? What sorts of things will I know about myself? How am I going to look at the world differently? What sort of creative ideas are going to come out of me? And what will they make me want to create? What sorts of new questions am I going to want to ask? And so when I, when I pick up a book, I never demand that it makes some sort of pragmatic promise. I never demand of myself that I know ahead of time how I'm going to use this information. Because if I feel genuinely curious about it, I can guarantee without fail, I'll never be wrong on this. Once that information gets inside of me, it's going to do something to me. And I'm going to be a different dude than the guy that I was when I first picked up the book. And like, who is that guy? I want to get to be him. And I want to see what he wants to do, you know, and how life shows up for that dude. And, and I, I kind of look at, I kind of look at work in the same way. What matters to me about the job that I do is that it either seems interesting to me for its own sake, or it seems like it's something that is relevant to something that I want to do in the future, but don't feel quite ready for right now. And both of those things are really just interest. And if I have that, I have absolutely, absolute faith that it's impossible for me to be stuck because how the heck can you get stuck when the essence of who you are is, is dynamic and it's always evolving and you're always learning? Like you can't get stuck. 
getting stuck is when you're sort of like resisting your experience. And so you're half in, half out, and you kind of show up in other people's lives as like the bitter dude that's doing just enough to get by. Of course, nobody's going to offer you jobs or want to hang out with you like that. You know, it's funny hearing you say that. I, I know that you're you're absolutely telling the truth when you say you you will only do a job if it's inherently interesting or if you are you know, really excited about what it's going to help you achieve some other goal. And you're uncompromising in that way. But but when I try to imagine a job that would not fulfill one of those two criteria for you, it's very hard for me to think of one. And I think this speaks to a superpower that you have, but I don't think it's something that others can't learn because I think largely in part to you, I have learned it not to the level you have it, but I have I have learned this attribute um, when I didn't think I, I could before, or at least not to the same extent. And that superpower is your creativity in thought. It, and, I, and I mean creativity differently from your creativity in like, you know, making a painting or creating a piece of art, which is what most people think of. But you are incredibly creative in seeing the world. Like it takes creativity to see in a server job, something that you really want. When you're uh, uh, passionate about acting and philosophy, right? But you see that. You see all these connections. And when you describe it, I'm like, no, he's not crazy. He's right. He's seeing a lot of things in here. One, on a very practical level, if you can become a great bartender, high demand, highly transferable, easy way to go get a job in LA that pays you enough to live out there where you're trying to make it as an actor. And the ability to read people, network with people, to make people smile, to turn frowns into smiles, and to validate that you did that with tips that you earned from people, right? Like you approach these as kind of philosophical problems, problems of learning the very skills that you're interested in for other things. And it takes imagination and creativity to see things in that way and to look at things and to to not, it's like, you're, you have a deeper level of interest. You're, you're willing to ask a couple more questions. Most people, when presented with an opportunity, hey, do you want to work at a, at a restaurant? Would be like, no, I want to be an actor and philosopher. You would say, hold on, let me break that down. What does working at a restaurant entail? And you kind of work through, and like within a few minutes, you'd start to get excited. You'd start to see possibility. And I think that's something that's really magical that it's not, it's more than just, you know, uh, just find a way to trick yourself into thinking some shitty job is a good job. It's more about seeing the reality that the world is pregnant with possibility. And if you make those connections, that's what entrepreneurs do. They make connections that other people don't. They say, hey, I see people mad about this and I see this. Aha, this could be more like this. What if I connected those two, right? And so I think that's just a really unique um, a really unique skill that you have that, I, that has rubbed off on me, certainly. Yeah, you, you wrote an article about this maybe a couple of years ago called, I think it was called Tell Them Your Story, Not Your Status. And, and you talked about how like when you have this preoccupation with the status that's associated with the job, it limits your ability to think creatively about how you narrate your own professional journey. And so you have a lot of people out there who they, 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 they hold their heads you know, low when, when they have to admit that they worked at Denny's or something like that. But they hang their heads high when they like, you know, get to talk about a time where they worked at a job where they wore a suit and they have a terrible time selling themselves because they're not even sold on their own work. 
And, and what you talked about is like, you got to strip away the particulars, strip away the title, strip away, you know, the, the uniform that you have to wear or what people call you or what your parents think of that job and step back and say, what are the first principles that are involved in my work, right? Like, what are the fundamentals that are involved here? So if I'm working as a bartender, first of all, I have to be really good at making people feel like they're at home in my bar. That's customer service. You can't tell me any job where that skill isn't going to be highly applicable. Somebody's coming home from work, they're grumpy, they're tired, they're annoyed, or they're just looking for a good time. And they're looking for you to not just make a drink, but to actually be their friend, to make them feel like they're, like they're your friend. And then, you know, here's somebody like me. I've got one guy in my bar who's a NASCAR fan, and I don't know anything about that, right? And then I've got another guy in my bar who's a basketball fan, and that's what I want to talk about. But it's my job to somehow connect with both of these guys. How the heck do you do that? Well, well now you can't draw from stories that you have. you got to draw from uh, question-asking skills, listening skills, and you still have to be technically sharp because those drinks, people get mad when you don't make them right. So that's an art unto itself. And you also have to make those drinks in a way that's fun to watch, you know? And, and there's so many things and you got to multitask. You got to keep your servers happy because they've got drinks to get to their table. So they don't want to see you chumming it up with the people at, at the bar at their expense. And when you strip away the particulars and look at what you're doing here, I'm creating aesthetic experiences. I'm demonstrating the technical skill of learning how to memorize recipes and put them together in a way that tastes good. I'm demonstrating the ability to ask thoughtful questions, to make people feel special, to appease people when they're angry, you know, to do several things at one time. What can I possibly want to do with my life where those won't be assets and advantages? And there is no one on this planet who won't be thoroughly impressed with that if I'm applying to work with them, if I tell them in the right way, if I tell them in the right way. But I can't do that if I don't believe in what I'm doing. If I think I'm just a victim of having to work at this stupid old restaurant, well, that's what's going to come out. Because, you know, Zig Ziglar says that sales is a transference of feeling. And if I feel like crap about what I do, then I'm probably going to reflect that in the way I talk about it. You know, it's funny, as you were talking, I thought of a um, sort of an underappreciated aspect of a lot of jobs, but especially sort of service jobs, entry-level service type jobs. And that is networking. When people think about networking for their career, they're like, oh, I got to go and deliberately network. And so they're like, you know, they think of things like college or networking meetups where everybody else in your same age and same station in life is trying to network. And so you're just like meeting other people who need all the same things you need and don't, can't offer you much more, but you know, for the most part, not, not always, but the kind of people that are the most valuable to your network tends to be a vertical network instead of horizontal, right? It's people who have much more experience than you or much less that you can help in a variety of, of places. And those people that are the people that are most valuable for your network with are the types who are not going to show up at a networking event, who are, whose time is too valuable. They don't want to network. Well, yeah. what do they do? They need to buy dinner. They need to drink a beer every once in a while. They need to get from point A to point B in an Uber. And so like, Jobs like Uber driving in a big city uh, or, you know, being a bartender, the odds that doing your job in a remarkable way that stands out to people results in them giving you the time of day. You've got them alone in the car. If you're an Uber driver or if you're at the bar, they're there giving you attention. You're going to get connections more likely like that 
make your network more valuable than if you go to a hundred networking events. You know what I mean? It's, it's just one of those things like, and if, but you, if you don't, if you're checked out, if you're too good for the job and you're just doing the bare minimum, that won't happen. Um, one quick paradoxical add-on to that, the, the lower you are on like the status totem pole, the more impressed those people you network with will be if you do what you do with enthusiasm. I mean, I, I got offered jobs when I worked as a server, whether it was an Applebee's or Gulfstream or Papado, wherever I worked, I got job offers every day. And it was because like my customers would see seven different tables demanding stuff of me, people getting irritated and mad. And they're like, how is this dude smiling and being nice to people the entire time? I need somebody like that on my team because there's a lot of tough people I got to put up with. There's a lot of difficult stuff that needs to be done. And I need somebody who can I, I got to tell you, I know those offers weren't because of the skill in drink mixing or tray carrying <laughs> because you were like average at best at those things, but you crushed it on the attitude front. <laughs> I, I, I was, I, yeah, an average would be a compliment. As a server, average would be a compliment. <laughs> my, uh, I had a, my GM at Applebee's at the time, his name was Greg. You remember that Alan Iverson, we talking about practice. Yep. He used to always do with me a monologue at the end of every night. We talking about side work because I was, I would always be behind on my side work, you know, like keeping the dressing stock, like getting everything clean. And he would always be like, man, I'm over here trying to hang out with my customers and make everybody happy. And you talk about side work. <laughs> I just wasn't very good. I wasn't a very good server at all the things that you're supposed to do. I did well enough to be able to get by. But, but, I, but I really embrace that challenge of being able to just connect with people. And so, you know, I'll, I'll take one example. In any field, you can have a competitive advantage just by being the type of person who can answer people's questions without being mad at them for asking those questions. <laughs> like no matter what the field is, right? And, and, and working a server job teaches you that because you have people that are flat out annoying who will ask you annoying questions and they will take all day they, they didn't have a name for them then, but not, now they call them Karens. <laughs> yeah, Karens. Like, <laughs> isn't that crazy, man? Like, we would have never been able to, to predict the Karen phenomenon no. 10 years ago. Like, that's no. crazy. <laughs> the best part is that my mom's name is Karen, and she's kind of <laughs> Karen. She's, she's a nice kind. You know, it's funny. This is totally random, but you, may, you mentioned, like, it doesn't matter if it's low status, if you're working at Denny's. I just thought two things. One... Can you imagine how much bizarre and interesting stuff you'd see working at Denny's? Because it's one of those 24-hour, super cheap places. Like, I know there's got to be some fascinating people that come in. And the second thing, I don't remember who, but I remember somebody I know telling me they were at Denny's one time and uh, they got their meal and they were like, I don't know why you would do this at Denny's because I don't know what you're expecting. It's like $2 for like 30 pancakes and steak, you know? But he's like... He said, it's, it's really greasy. It's too greasy. And he sent it back to the kitchen. And so he said he saw the waiter take it, hand it to the guy in the kitchen. The guy in the kitchen just pulls a dirty towel to hang it out of his waist and just wipes the grease off the top and hands it back to him. <laughs> uh, he probably didn't expand his network that night. Um, so it hasn't been all rainbows. You've had some, some definite struggles and, and pain points. And I know there've been a couple specific times where you have gone to make a career choice or a career change and you have faced a lot of pressure from family, girlfriends, friends, teachers, respected mentors and peers 
Um, you know, we could talk about it, maybe a couple different ones, but I know, um, I think when you, even when you went to college, decide to go into acting maybe, but, but I, I know for sure when you had, you know, a mentor of yours in academia had worked hard to kind of help set you up with a pretty awesome, um, sort of scholarship thing. And you're working your way into being a, basically being a philosophy prof and you're, you're going through the, the program, you're teaching some classes as a TA and doing all this stuff. And he's got you on this thing and it's this great setup. And you're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go fly out to LA to audition for American Idol and like skip on my duties and responsibilities. Yeah. Um, I know that wasn't easy for you in, in those moments. And there have been moments where your parents have been very frustrated or worried about your choices. How, how did you get through that for people who are in a similar spot where they kind of, they, they feel something calling them and they want to go do something and the people they love and care about and respect the most are really pushing back. How did you deal with that? And what would you say to that person? Yep. Can I, can I give you one example to throw on of a, of a moment that jumps out to me? Yeah. Pick one, pick one. Yeah. I, I remember when I was working at American Express, um, there was never a period in my life where, where people were more proud of me. Um, I, I got to wear a suit and tie to work every day. Um, I, I, I had a fancy title, financial advisor, and you know I had financial licenses. That's you know what when I, mean? I first met you, by the way. So I knew TK as always wearing a suit, and like I was very—it was false advertising. <laughs> yeah, at that time we went to the same church, and I remember I had the reputation for being the best dresser. Like those people had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> They had no idea. <laughs> but, um, but, but I, I remember this one day at work. I'm, I'm there pretty late because I'm like studying for this test that's coming up. And um, there's this black dude who was a janitor and he would come in, you know, a, a lot and he'd be there in the evenings. And this was kind of a rare moment where we're there alone at the same time. And, and I remember there's a moment where he walks over to my cubicle and he says, hey, brother, I just want to let you know, man. It's good to see you up here. It's good to see you up here. And, and, and his his eyes were like kind of watery, and it was like a serious moment for this guy. And I, I didn't quite get that, you know, at the time. But it, but there was like this this burden, right? It's like you are a young black dude. You're working at American Express Financial Advisors, bro. When I look at you, it gives me hope for the world, and it indicates to me that it's possible for not just you, but for so many of us who haven't maybe experienced what you have. Mm-hmm. Now, that was like 20 years ago, you know, or maybe like 15 years ago. And, you know, now that kind of thing may be more normal. You see so many black podcasters and, and, and you know, television personalities talking about finance and money, but it wasn't as popular back then. And, and that kind of gives you a, a picture of the, of the level of expectation because the, the disappointment in me wasn't arbitrary. For me to walk away from something like American Express as a black dude and say I want to go into acting, you know what I mean? Of all things, it's like, dude, we've already conquered that. We got music, <laughs> right? We got acting. We, we we got basketball. Like, what are you You're like? Doing? Hey, I'm I'm crushing it in finance. Uh, now I'm trying to decide between uh, hip hop and uh, MBA career. You know, <laughs> right. it's like that's that was so disappointing. To a lot of older people in my life who felt like we made sacrifices so that you can have opportunities we didn't have. 
And and this is how you're going to use that. So how'd you overcome that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. How did I overcome it? So it gets easier as you go along, but, but I think, I think for me, there there were a lot of moments of self-doubt. There were a lot of moments where it was really difficult and where I questioned myself and I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm crazy. I'm probably going to like crash and burn in the worst sort of way and regret it. But I, I never, ever got close to not doing what I wanted to do because I've always had, I've always had this strong sense of no matter how much you hate me, that won't be comparable to the hatred I will have for you. If I wake up someday and I wonder what I could have been had I done what I really wanted to do. And I'm willing to put up with your hatred of me in order to save the both of us from something that's going to be far more painful. You know, like I, I would never want to talk to my parents again. I would, I, I would cut all of my friends off if I ever woke up. It felt like I, ne- I never tried what I really wanted to try. I never said what I really wanted to say because I was afraid of you not liking me. To me, that's just a, a terrible trade-off. You know, um, the, the, there's this. Uh, I, I think it's in the um, John, one of John Maxwell's books. I think it's the. Um, I think it might be the Failing Forward book, but 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 he tells this like anecdote that I'm going to butcher of, of this guy who he's in love with a cocktail waitress. He comes from a really rich family and his family is just always hard on him because he's in love with a, a poor girl from the wrong side of the tracks. And so he just lets that get into his head and he breaks off the relationship because it's never going to work. And he marries a girl that his parents approve of. She's from a rich home. She's got the Ivy League degree. He didn't really like her that much, but she fit in so much better with his family. and. Some years later, after a bitter divorce, the dude's at, you know, a family party and he's just kind of muttering to himself, half drunk. And he says to himself, I should have married that cocktail waitress. And right at that moment, everybody turned and looked at him and they said, well, why didn't you do, you know, quit bitching about it. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it, it, it captured for me what it's like to have regrets when, when, when you show uncertainty on what you want to do, people will have all sorts of opinions about it. They'll, they'll be happy to tell you the life they want you to live. But if you ever get to a point where you're like, man, I should have done this. Nobody's going to give you a refund on that regret. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. I told you to go do the other thing. They'll be like, you don't blame me. Nobody's going to let you blame them for your regret. Like you're going to experience that regret alone. So you might as well just go ahead and do what you want to do. Man, I, I love that. Uh, no one's going to give you a refund on your regret. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny. I remember this is one of the things I, I would say to a lot of young people when we first started Praxis, people that really did not want to do college, but they were afraid of the suffering they would have to endure from friends and family if they didn't do it. And, and this is right in line with what you're saying that you're going to suffer no matter what. Life is going to give you things you're going to have to suffer. And you get the choice. Do you want to suffer with meaning or have meaningless suffering? And when you're suffering That's it. for something meaningless, it's like, I want to avoid the disapproval of my parents. So I'm sitting here doing something that has no meaning to me and I'm suffering meaninglessly versus I had to buck my parents' approval or whoever it is and do something that has meaning to me. And I'm suffering because of it, but I'm suffering for the sake of something with meaning. And those two difference, I mean, how do you break a man's will or a woman's will by taking away meaning, not by adding suffering, but by taking away meaning? Because people will suffer if it has meaning. I remember stories, I think Viktor Frankl talks about this in the concentration camps, that 
they would have prisoners. They didn't just load them up with physical tasks and torture to break them through suffering and, and deprivation of food. They would make sure that they felt meaningless to break their spirit. So they would have them dig mm-hmm. trenches and then fill them back in and then mm-hmm. carry dirt from one end of the yard and then carry it right back to the other. Because once you, you, it's not suffering that breaks you, but it's meaningless suffering. And I think that's the choice you get. There is no avoidance of suffering. You right. get to choose if the price you pay, if the challenges you go through are those that, are, that, that come with meaning, that, that you suffer for a reason, or if you just suffer and you don't ever get the meaning on top of it. Um, Man, that, that's so well said. Can I, can I throw another thought on there? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going to see if we can squeeze in two other points, but we, we, I think we have time. We got time. Throw in another thought. We could go right. for a long time, I bet. So, so here, here's my thought about happiness and greatness alike. I, I, I believe this to be a necessary condition for both. You must believe that you know something about yourself or that you are capable of knowing something about yourself that no one else can know until you bring it forth. If you don't dare to believe that, then I don't think you can ever achieve happiness or greatness. You've you, you got to believe that you can look inside your own soul and uncover a truth that not your parents, not your best friends, or anyone else is capable of knowing until you bring it forth through some kind of creative process. And the reason this is so important is because when you go to people for advice, even people who know you well, even people who love you with good intentions, the best that they can do is they can advise you based on their understanding of like what you're capable of, what you can handle, what you want. And so when people tell you, nah, you shouldn't do that, you should do this, they're, they're, they're giving you a picture of how they see you. That's not a bad thing, by the way, but, but they're, giving, they're, they're giving you their incomplete picture of like their assessment of your strengths, your weaknesses, what, what you probably wouldn't enjoy. And if you know something that they don't know, then that means you ultimately have to weigh everything that people tell you against your own visceral experience, against your own life. You know, when my father advised me about American Express, it was because he told me, he was like, you're not going to enjoy that, man. Like, you got to make all these sales calls. You got to do all this. And my father knew that I was the type of dude. I like to be alone. I like to read my books. I didn't like, to, he was absolutely right that I wouldn't enjoy cold calling. But for whatever crazy reason, given what I wanted at that time and what I was hungry for, I went to that job and I made like hundreds of cold calls every day. And I enjoyed it. I'd go home and listen to Tony Robbins, stand in the mirror and say affirmations to myself and be like, let's go get cursed out by some more people. And I felt like this was an exciting part of my journey. And it was one of the most important stages of my life. And he couldn't have known that about me because he didn't know what my spiritual evolution was demanding of me at that time. And that's something that you, you don't disrespect people in order to disagree with them. You don't have to be dismissive of what they say. Don't take it personally because... Most, most cases, they're just being sincere, but you got to know something about yourself that nobody else can know. So I have two, two more topics I want to hear you, you riff on here, and I'll just share both of them, and then I'll let you pick which one you want to go with and just, and just go from one to the next. <laughs> so one is um, <clears throat> the idea of you know, fear of being exploited when you're out there on the job market or in a job. Um, and a story that you've told many times is, uh, you know, I think you wrote a blog post about it, you know, carry the tray and you worked at your first server job at, at Olive Garden and, you, you know, you were, you'd spilled the tray a couple times. And so you asked if you could take a tray home with you. And over the weekend, when all your friends are partying, 
you're practicing carrying things on this tray. And a lot of them were like, dude, you're stupid. You're, you're basically working for free on your off hours and you're not getting paid trying to learn to carry a tray. And your claim was like, I'm investing in myself to make my work experience better, to make myself better. You didn't see it as you basically working hours that you weren't getting paid for, unfair hours. I mean, they didn't ask you to do it in the first place, but we've talked a lot about the concept of free work, offering to do projects for people for free or demonstrating your skill by saying, hey, I created this for you. I'd love to do more and putting in hours of time, working an internship, saying I'll work an unpaid internship to learn. That concept, a lot of people get really scared and worried about exploitation. I'm going to get exploited. I'm going to get taken advantage of. I'd love to hear you riff on that. And then the second one, and you can pick what order you want to go in, is something, I don't think it's super pervasive, but a few people have mentioned this, particularly with, with Crash, we have this kind of approach to winning opportunities, which is burn your resume, send something unique and special that, that's tailored to you and who you are, and really like put your brand out there, show your work, send a video pitch saying, hey, I love your company, show your personality and yourself. And we've had some people come back, especially recently where there's a lot of concern about diversity in companies and hiring practices and say, yeah, but if there's a video, like say you're a minority, what if somebody has you know, bias and they see that video and they don't even listen to it because they see the color of your skin and reject it? And I have my own reasons for saying, man, that's not the way you want to go. You don't want to hide your identity and hope that you sneak in the door at a company with people who don't like you for superficial reasons. But I'd be curious to hear your take on, on that kind of topic in particular. Like, do you think that there's some special level of caution or strategy that let's say a minority has to have when they're trying to win opportunities because you know there's there's specific challenges or disadvantages they face. I just love to hear you riff on that um, specifically from a job seeker mindset standpoint. Not so much what the world is up to, but how you think job seekers who feel that they're going to be discriminated against the best way they can react to that. Yeah. Well. Well. well so first, um, let's let's deal with that last one. Like you know, being a minority. So I, I think. As minorities, we we should value learning how to be creative even more, right? Um, because you know, anytime you have obstacles, anytime you have barriers, yeah, there, there is a there is a battle that has to be fought in terms of undermining those obstacles and barriers at a broader level. But at an individual level, you, you you've got to innovate around things. You've got to innovate around difficulties and. And an important part of strategic thinking is being able to know when you are at a disadvantage or being able to know when you are being discriminated against so that you can be more creative for the sake of your own selfishness, right? Now, what's funny to me about that particular objection is that it seems to be based on the assumption that you can, that like, let's say if you black, for instance, and, and, and clearly it assumes that, that somebody is not going to hire you or take you seriously because you're black. And it's sort of, you know, implies that I can trick them into hiring me if I don't let them see my blackness too early, right? So I'm not going to see you guys a video because I don't want y'all to know that I'm black. Um, but there's going to come some other point where your racism towards my blackness, you know, isn't going to have an impact. I mean, at some point in order to get to the job, I got to make contact with a human being, you know, at some point I'm going to have to do an interview and, and people are going to see me. And, and, and if the basis for them not hiring me is my blackness, it's going to be an issue there, whether it's a live conversation, a Zoom call, or a video recording that I do. So you're, you're not going to defeat racism 
by pretending to be something that you're not. You're not going to defeat racism by concealing the reality of your blackness. In fact, I think if you, you know, if you are interested in combating that, you, you want to set the tone and set the example of owning who you are and presenting your blackness or whatever else, whatever else it is, as if it's a force to be taken seriously in the professional world as much as anything else, you know? So I'm not denying the, the realities or probabilities of those problems, but I certainly don't think it's a solution to hide who you are. I don't think that's going to make things any better. Um, real, you know, real, real, another, quick on, real quick on that. I, I, I think there's a similar, you know, you could extrapolate to any, any attribute of yourself that you think might give you a disadvantage on the job market um, because, you know, the trends that you see. So I have a lot of people say that about age, if they're older than, you know, if they're going for an entry level job and they're 40 because they haven't worked before or whatever, um, if it's lack of a college degree. And I think you never want to try to hide it and trick people into thinking that you have a degree or that you're 25, but you also don't need to, you don't need to feel like, well, I got to just immediately be like, hi, I'm a 50 year old without a degree. You know, like you can focus on what it is that you can uniquely do for them, completely own those attributes about yourself without shame or fear. You know, hey, I'm really good at dealing with challenging customer situations. I've done it before as a whatever, volunteer teacher, et cetera. I'm older than your typical applicant. I'm new to the workforce. I mean, you don't have to say older, but like I've got experience and I've, I've got emotional intelligence, you know, and that stuff is way more exciting than blah, blah, blah. And, and lead with that. And if, and if people ask about those other attributes, don't be ashamed of them. Don't be afraid of them. But it doesn't necessarily mean you have to like, you know, you don't have to hide it. And you also don't have to try to hit people over the head with it. The key is ask what the company is going to value most and lead with that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So here's another thing I add on to it. The, the more likely it is that people will dismiss you because of some superficial quality, the more valuable it is for you to be as visible as possible so that you can have the best opportunity to overcome whatever that stereotype or objection is. So for instance, if, if let's say you're like 18 and the stereotype against 18 year olds is you don't know how to work hard, you're, you're probably not very smart or something stupid like that, right? Well, if all they have is some application, with your age on it, well, there's nothing really there to counter that objection. It's easier for them to go with whatever's in their imagination. On the other hand, if you make a video where you're talking about your experiences in an interesting way and making a compelling case for the value that you can create and you're exuding passion and enthusiasm, that might very well be the thing that makes them say, okay, you know, seeing this 18 year old in video actually makes me like them more. I like their energy. You know, I remember when I applied for uh, a job, when I, when I got out to LA, my roommate told me there was this higher end restaurant. He was like, you got to go try to get a job there because you can make a few hundred a night. You know, it's like, you know, real nice upper class job. There, there were no black people working there. You know, um, and in fact, there was, this, there was this black dude who, um, who worked there. He started working there like a year later and he used to call me Frederick Douglass because, you know, he said, <laughs> I was like. He says, like, you're the Frederick Douglass in this restaurant. You're the first brother to come in. But, like, at this job, I had no reason to think I would get hired there. But what I did was I went there when I wasn't going to apply. And I looked at what the, what the uniform was, what the servers were wearing. And then I went and I actually got that uniform. 
you know, and, and I, and I walked in, when I walked in to apply, I looked like I was a server and the woman who saw me walk in, she looks at me and she smiles and she says, okay, I see you've done your homework, huh? You're looking for a job. And, and she, she instantly kind of liked me, right? Now, what if I had just walked in, you know, just dressed like myself, you know, she could have had whatever she had going on in her head, but there was something about me moving at a speed that was faster than, than her own thoughts she could have had about me that gave me a competitive advantage. So that, so that dovetails into the next one. So you went out and spent your own money on this uniform, you know, aren't you, aren't you just getting ripped off? You're getting exploited. You're spending all this money just to try to, you know, this company is basically taking advantage of you. Uh, give me your take on that. Cause I, that's an objection that I hear. And, uh, it always, it always kind of grinds my gears. Cause I, I think people are robbing themselves, but I'd love to hear your, your take. Yeah, you know, I, I think when some people hear a story like that, they're, they're so inclined to like go to bat for someone else. And, and they're so afraid of like someone who has a different situation listening to that and being like, well, man, I don't, I don't have the, you know, the, the, theoretical, the theoretical person that you're trying to defend. Yeah. 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 And, and so they defend that person. And I, I think the caveat for all advice should be, you know, you got to think critically and creatively about how it applies to your own life. It, it, no one's story is the same. And that might be true for somebody. Like, you know, I, I did have the $30. I didn't, I didn't really have much. I had like $100 in my pocket and I felt like that was a great risk. I, I was willing to bet on myself. I was like, I'm willing to spend half my money on this uniform because I believe it's going to get me a job that, you know, allows me to make a lot more than that, you know, in just a, in one day. And so I, I was willing to take that chance, but everybody's got their own comfortable comfort with risk and whatnot. So you gotta, you gotta interpolate, make things fit your own life. But here's what I would say about exploitation. My attitude is this, it's never for free if I'm doing it for me. The only way for me to get exploited is for me to put somebody else and their agenda first. Now, if I'm going, if I'm working for you because it makes you happy and I'm afraid you're gonna be mad at me, that sets me up to be manipulated and exploited in all kinds of ways that will leave me better. But if I'm doing everything I do with a sense of purpose, and, and, and before I even say yes to an offer, I'm clear with myself, why am I doing this? Okay, What price am I willing to pay in order to make this happen for me? Under what conditions will I be happy to say yes because I believe that I'm winning more than I'm losing? If, I, if, if, I, if I'm good on those questions, then it doesn't really matter what the other person is getting out of the deal. And I think sometimes I think we define exploitation wrong. To me, exploitation is when someone else profits at the expense of your individual rights, which is essentially fraud, right? To, to me, that's exploitation. Exploitation is not when someone else benefits from a transaction that I'm involved in. You know, it, it, and a lot of people feel like, if you're, if you're winning, if you're making money off of me, that that's some intrinsically scandalous thing. You know, when I go to Starbucks and, and I pay, you know, like a dollar and 50 for a cup of coffee that it probably takes them, you know, 20 cents to make. Yeah. You know, they, they don't really love me, right? They're, they're making money off of me and, and they're winning big time. But am I being exploited? Well, first of all, it's not lost on me that it's really cheap for them to make this cup of coffee. I know that I'm too lazy to make one at the crib, right? right? Like I know what I'm doing. I'm paying for the convenience. I'm paying for, you know, uh, the, the ambiance, the customer service. I'm paying for the experience. 
And I've already decided for myself that it's worth it for me to pay that for a cup of coffee. Am I winning? Am I getting what I want out of the transaction? And I think a lot of people, when they go to work, they have this fundamental sense of losing because people think about their preferences, but they don't always think about their purpose. And I think there's a difference, you know, like everybody's got preferences like, oh, I, you know, I want to be loved for what I do. Um, I want everybody to treat me well. I want to make good money. I want to be able to come in when I want. I want to, I want to have a good time, but that's, that's not, that's not purposeful enough. You've got to really think about what makes saying yes to this job for you. And so I think it, if you have, here's a way to make it really easy. If somebody's considering an offer and they're worried about being exploited, my question is this, you always ask it compared to what, right? Is there something better that you could be doing? And you get to define what better means. I don't want any part of that. You define what better is. Is there something better that you could be doing? If there is, yeah, it will be exploitation for you to say yes to anything else. You owe it to yourself to do the best thing that's available to you. Okay. So if you got something better to do, go do it. On the other hand, if the alternative is having nothing to do and the option that you're considering is one that allows you to develop experience, develop skills, become more valuable, build a network. My question to you is, why would you say no to what you consider to be your best available option? What are you saying yes to when you say no to that? Yeah, I love that. Just bringing it back to you like, hey, look, we don't need to decide whether out there some theoretical person might be getting ripped off by doing a project for free or doing an unpaid internship. Just bring it back to you and don't worry about what other people are getting. Be more selfish. What do you want? And if you say, hey, man, I would love to learn marketing from Dave Gerhart. If I could spend three months just doing work next to him and asking him questions, I would gain so much. I wouldn't even need to get paid. It'd be so worth it. I'm going to go and try to sell him on that idea. If that's worth it to you, if you benefit and you want that, no one should stop you from that. And you shouldn't feel bad about that yourself. And, and when, you, you know, when you ask compared to what, it's like, well, wait a minute. That seems like I might be getting exploited. Well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But if you're like, you know, compared to not doing anything at all or paying a bunch of money to take sociology classes I'm not interested in and hope that somebody wants to pay me uh, later because I have a degree in sociology or whatever, you start to realize when you remove that idea that like, well, I can't ever, can't ever be, you know, I got to be really worried about making sure nobody's taking advantage of me. And that's like not selfish enough. That's too focused on the other person. Focus on you. Like what is the highest value thing you can do for yourself? And sometimes, Sometimes it's something crazy, like spending a month building some incredible thing for somebody without pay, without even being asked to, and then sending to them or sharing it with the world um, and having people say, holy cow, this person's amazing. I want to talk to them, right? Like you invest in building your capital and building your brand. Um, and I think that just thinking, thinking more about your own benefit rather than is somebody else benefiting? Who cares? Like, hopefully they are. Hopefully everybody's benefiting from the work that you're doing, right? Um, but as long as you're benefiting, that's what you need to, to focus on. TK, wait, I feel wait, like wait, we wait, could wait, go on wait, for, wait, forever. Wait, wait. But okay, bring it home. You wrap up this thing for us. I got, I, we had to cut this baby out. These are supposed to be 20 minute episodes. It's been almost an hour. So bring it home. Yeah, you know, I, I think this, this advice really applies heavily because people miss the context on this. If you are new in your career and you don't have economic value, you may have spiritual value. You have value in God's eyes, no matter what you know. 
But if you don't have a lot of economic value, you, you, you just don't have the leverage to demand that other people will accommodate your preferences, then, or, 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 or you're trying to transition into a field where you don't have that value, then I think being willing to negotiate preferences in order to create opportunities that will help you accumulate leverage is a potentially brilliant thing to do for the right situation. On the other hand, if you are someone where you're like a photographer and people are using your images and you're asking for credit and they're just using stuff for free without telling you or sneaking around it, to me, that's exploitation, but that's an entirely different thing. You know, like if you have the right to be paid for your work and and, and the proper agreements have been made, like you have the right to demand that. Or, or, Or even if you're, if you and other artists in your industry are protesting for more pay, whatever, that's an entirely different topic. This is for people that are trying to figure out how can I work my way towards my dream job when I don't have any experience to incentivize other people to care at all about my dream because I'm super easy to replace. Last thing, my theory about career, life, everything else, it's about my theory. It's the same as my theory about having a good time. I learned a long time ago to never ever approach any situation like I hope it's a good time because that means you're leaving it up to something other than you. Mm -hmm. circumstances, chance, the people that are going to be there. And whenever you leave things up to anybody other than you, you're probably going to be disappointed. You know, don't ever go into any situation being like, I hope it's a good time. Ask yourself ahead of time, what needs to happen in order for me for it to be a good time? And then take responsibility for creating that, you know, or or, or like, you know, what, what, what conditions need to be present? Because if you can't give a, a hell yes to that, then don't even waste your time going. Go do something else that gives you a good time or go do something in a context where you feel confident in your ability to create a good time, but never, never leave it up to anybody else. It's your life. TK, man. Thank you so much. Uh, go check out tkcoleman.com or Revolution of One phenomenal uh, podcasts, YouTube series. You can find it. Just Google it or YouTube, Twitter, pretty much everywhere to keep up with what TK is doing. We'll talk to you later, man. Peace. Like what you hear? Go to crash.co and join the career revolution. If you want to share your own career crash story, send it directly to me at isaac at crash.co. 